Welcome back. This is chapter nine of Attack of the Turtle. Rain was running off my hat and down my neck. A nor'easter had blown in the day after the battle. One long rain-soaked day and night had gone by, and it was still pounding down late the next afternoon. The water in the trench I stood in had risen to my thighs. Another beautiful day in Brooklyn, muttered a soldier next to me, whom I secretly called the grumbler. I didn't nod or respond. I simply stood there, soaked and miserable, wondering what I should do. Brooklyn Heights seemed safe enough. Thousands of soldiers were positioned behind thick walls of earth and logs. Small forts bristling with cannons rose above the earthworks. Tangled thickets and forests choked all approaches to the heights, except for a kill zone the men had cleared, 100 feet of open space to repel any redcoats foolish enough to attack up the slope. Despite these defenses, I barely slept. I don't think anyone had. The rain pounded down after, after, hour after hour without letting up. Worse, I feared the attack that the soldiers around me said could happen at any minute. Everyone kept squinting over the earthworks towards the enemy lines. About 500 yards away, redcoats were busy digging trenches, inching like ants ever closer to our lines. Why they hadn't attacked? No one knew. The lobsters' backs would have bagged a lot of us if they hadn't stopped, Grumbler said. It's all uphill, said a soldier. I called the mumbler. We'd slaughter them all the way up. They're afraid it would be Bunker Hill all over again. That's why they're digging siege trenches. Slaughter them? Gumbler snapped. Slaughter them. With wet powder. It was true. Along our little part of the line, most of our muskets were worthless. I heard some idiot forgot to cover the wagon, carrying all the gunpowder, Grumbler said. If the British attack, all you'll hear from us is one big click. Then they'll level their bayonets in charge, and that will be the end of us, Mumbler said. We don't have any powder, and we don't have any bayonets. How are we supposed to fight? No one asked me questions, which was fine. Maybe it was because I finally had a gun, and they thought I was one of them. I'd seen a musket in an empty powder horn lying in the road during a panicked retreat to the heights, and somehow I'd had the sense to pick it up. I had no musket balls or gunpowder, but the thick wood felt good in my hands. The gun was the only thing that felt good. As dark descended for the third night since the battle, I shivered and wondered what to do. I could try to get back across the river to the city, but they might think I was a deserter, and deserters got shot. Or I could try to find Joe and the rest of the company, after I'd run like a coward. Or I could stay put and wait for the bayonet assault. I'm doomed no matter what I do, I thought.
Or I could look for Papa. He might be down on the battlefield, dead, but he might be alive. He'd be furious to see me so far from Saybrook, but at last he could tell me what to do. When it was dark, I eased out of the trench and began slogging my way down the line. Here and there, men were able to keep campfires going under makeshift canvas shelters. I stuck my head inside one of the tents. And have you seen Joshua Wade from the 7th Connecticut Volunteers? I asked. Eyes flickered towards my face. Some men didn't look at all, staring blankly into the pathetic little fire. Finally, one of the men shook his head. No, boy. I worked my way down the line, getting the same answer from group after group. Sorry, son. There were hundreds killed and captured, said one soldier. He might be down in the battlefield somewheres. I never felt lonelier in my life. The rain beat down mercilessly on my face and back as I walked a dark stretch of the line. Shivers shook my shoulders and arms. I was ready to curl up in a hole and wait for some redcoat to run me through with his bayonet. About 50 yards ahead, a fire pricked the darkness. One more, I thought. I'll ask one more time if they've seen Papa, and then I'll find my hole. Five men were huddled around a small fire under some coats they balanced on their muskets. Anyone here seen Joshua Wade of the 7th Connecticut Volunteers? A man, whose face was hooded by a blanket, turned towards me. Nathan Wade? Is that you? he asked. Crikey, it, it was Butch Hyde. Butch? What are you doing here? I realized it was a stupid question as soon as I blurted it out. You fool, why do you think he's here? For fun? Butch pulled the blanket down to his shoulders. Come out of the rain, Wade. The other men glanced at Butch and shifted to make room. I sat on my haunches in front of him, my rear an inch above the muddy puddle. Wet strands of hair were plastered across my forehead and face. Butch looked tired and worn. In the flickering firelight, I glimpsed an angry red gourd that had run halfway across his forehead. I was glad to see someone I knew and that I didn't care if he was my arch enemy. Did you see my mama before you left Saybrook? Butch asked. No, we had to leave fast. Butch nodded and squinted at the fire, eyes moist. I came down with David and Ezra. We built the water machine to attack the British ships in the harbor, I said. Butch grunted. I heard something about that. I guess I should have figured it was Bushnell when they said it came from Connecticut. He's always one to tinker with things. Have you seen my father? I asked. Not since before the battle. We were on the old Jamaica Road, and about 10,000 redcoats got in our rear. We saw, never saw them coming. It got pretty hot. We held out for a while, but there was too many of them. Butch must have noticed my long face. He's probably all right, Wade. A lot of men scattered from their regiments during the fight. 
He's probably down the line somewhere. How's your father? Butch looked away. Not too good. He took a ball in the shoulder. I got him in the, they got him in the rear. We barely got away from their baronet, bayonets. That's where I got this. He pointed at a cut on his forehead. They took Pa across the river to the city, he said deeply. I had to stay here. Uh, duty, you know. Suddenly I remembered what I said to Josh back in Saybrook. I hope Butch Hyde gets killed by the British. My cheeks flushed with regret. I couldn't believe I said something so ugly. The bullying in Saybrook seemed a thousand miles away, almost like it didn't happen. This tired, bloodied Butch didn't seem so bad. We sat watching the rain. Two boys in the middle of a war, worried about their, oh, their own fathers. I knew I needed to keep looking for Papa, but I lingered, reluctant, to give up Butch's company. Finally, I stood up. Goodbye, Butch, I said. I'm going to keep looking for Papa. Butch stood up. I hate to see you go, but that's what I'd do if I was you. He extended his hand towards me. Memories of all the humiliation I suffered from Butch flooded back. The taunts, the shoves, and the fear I felt for so many summers crowded into my mind, clamoring for revenge. The old familiar hatred seized me. Shake his hand? Never. I was about to whirl around and stomp off, leaving his unshaken hand hanging. That would show him. I sensed a nudge within, from Providence perhaps, telling me to let go of my anger. But Butch had hurt me, I argued. He'd done me wrong, for no reason at all. For the longest second of my life, I agonized. Then I stuck out my hand. I gripped Butch's hand firmly and looked him square in the eye. I couldn't believe what I said next. Butch, I'm sorry for hating you all this time. It wasn't right. Butch blanked in surprise. I don't know that you're the one that needs to be sorry, Wade. I'm the one... I cut him off. It, it doesn't matter. Butch shook his head. Heck, I was scared that someday you'd stand up for yourself. As big as you are, you could have whipped me. You finally did. Knocked me down in front of Rachel Pratt, remember? I was so mad. He laughed, a deep belly laugh that sounded strangely out of place in this gloomy trenches. The soldiers sitting in the tent next to us Thought we must be crazy. I laughed too. Yeah, I can't believe I did that. I lingered, savoring the moment. Well, I need to go. You take care, Butch. As I walked away, Butch called out. Hey, Nathan. Good luck with that water machine. Sink some ships for us, all right? All right, Butch. You shoot us some redcoats. I began working my way down the line again, asking for Papa. It was the same as before. I haven't heard of him. But I also heard men talking desertion. As soon as the rain drops, 
The lobster backs will be on us, one soldier said. That fool Washington has got us trapped between the Redcoats and the river. If this nor'easter didn't have their fleet bottled up in the harbor, those boats would be on our reels so quick we'd be blown to bits. There's no way out. No way out. I imagine bayonets stabbing and thrusting at my guts. The morning light would bring row upon row of redcoats from the trenches a few hundred yards away. With parade ground precision, they would level their deadly steel and charge. I tried to push the fear from my mind, but it just grew. By the time I worked most of the way down the line, I was so nervous, I felt like throwing up. Men stood every ten feet or so in the flooded trench, staring towards the British lines. My legs numb, I stopped. Cold water splashed around my knees as I stepped down in the trench and took a place in the line. The soldiers to my right nodded, and I nodded back. A few minutes later, he waded over. Have you noticed? he asked. Noticed what? Since midnight, they've been pulling regiments out of the lines and spreading the rest for us out, right and left. The line is getting mighty thin. I don't know if we're retreating or getting ready to attack. I don't know either, I said. I'm just looking for my father. The soldier didn't seem to hear me, and he returned to his post. Sure enough, half an hour later, we were ordered to shift to the right. The soldier to my right was now 30 feet away. A little later, we shifted to the right again. The man to my right was now 50 feet away. Around two in the morning, the order came for us to move out. We lined up and began trotting rearward. Think we're evacuating? I asked one man. Lord, I hope so, he said. An officer ran over furious. Silence, he hissed. Our orders are absolute silence. If the enemy hears us moving out, they'll slaughter us like cattle. Chastened, we stole rearward, quiet as cats. We quickened our pace when we reached the road to the ferry. We're retreating, I exulted. We are getting out of here. Darkness shrouded the ferry. In the moonlight, hundreds of soldiers stood waiting. Officers on horseback moved about, keeping order and issues, quiet commands. Beyond them, small boats dotted the East River, longboats, whaleboats, sailboats. Loud shouting broke the calm. A group of soldiers were trying to force their way onto a crowded boat. A tall officer rode up, swung down from his mount, and pushed his way over to them. He picked up a large rock and held it over the boat. Get off, or I'll sink this boat to hell, he shouted. The rebellious men backed away. A vast, respectful silence filled the area around the ferry. The evacuation resumed. That was General Washington, the man in front of me whispered. He'd have sunk it too. The crowd in front of us slowly shrank as the boats continued their endless two-mile round trips between Long Island and New York. General Washington rode up 
to several officers standing near us. Good God, General Miffin. He would not have expected you to abandon your post, Washington explained. Sir, we didn't abandon our post. We did it by your order, General Mifflin replied. It can't be. By God, I did. Did Shamel act as your aide for the day, or did he not? He did. There you are, Mifflin said. I got the order through him. Washington frowned and shook his head. It was a dreadful mistake. You must return immediately to your posts. We have a terrible consequences if the enemy sees we aren't there. My heart sank. Back to the trenches? Filled with dread, I slunk back to the earthworks with the rest of the regiment. In the distance were the silhouettes of the British sentries. They didn't seem to notice our absence. The dark edge of the eastern horizon was softening. Dawn was coming, and death would not be far behind, I thought in despair. The rain was slacking. When the storm ended, the British would attack. We weren't going to be saved after all. There simply wasn't enough time. Hey, a voice hissed. A soldier standing about 30 feet to my right was waving me over. As I walked towards him, he turned to his right and waved to another soldier. We stood in the muddy patch of the grass above the trench. The man who had waved me over was short and wore tattered buckskin. The older soldier, the other soldier was about my height with piercing blue eyes and long ragged hair. The short man looked up at us and said shyly, do either of you fellows know the part of the Bible about the shepherd in the valley? He looked over at the British lines. I'm thinking we need some help. Dang quick. The rain is easing up, and once it quits, they'll be coming over. The blue-eyed man considered this for a moment. The 23rd Palm, he said finally. I know it. How it starts, anyway. If you can get it started, it might spark my memory, said the short man. He looked at me. How about you? To be honest, I couldn't remember a bit of it. In church, I heard all the palms and a bunch more of the Bible on Sunday afternoons when I was little. Papa had read the scriptures to us, but I felt so crushed down with fear. I could barely breathe, much less remember something about a shepherd. I I think I can manage a bit of it, I said. Here goes then, said the blue-eyed man. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in the green pastures. He layeth in me beside the still waters. He looked in the distance like he was looking for the words and shrugged. Um, That's all I remember. The short man picked up where the blue-eyed man left off. He restoreth my soul, he leadeth me in the path of righteousness. For his namesake, uh, yeah, 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 uh, though I walk, said the blue-eyed man. Yeah, exclaimed the short man. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through the dang em, valley of the shadow of death, 
I, I don't remember anymore. The two men looked at me expectantly. I was staring at my boots, locked up with fear. I closed my eyes and rocked back and forth a bit. Providence, help me remember. Suddenly, words popped into my mind. I will fear no evil, I said quietly, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yep, there you go, said the short man. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou announcest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I close my eyes. That's all I remember. I think that's all there is, the blue-eyed man said. The rain had ended. It was light enough to see the distant outlines of the British fortifications. An officer was walking our line, giving instructions. Men, if you've got dry powder, charge your weapon, he said. If the redcoats come, aim low. Make them pay for every step. Son, let me charge your gun, the shoreman said. I stashed some powder that didn't get wet. After he loaded my gun, I walked back towards my spot on the line. I felt strangely calm. Let the redcoats come. I'll get a shot off and then... I decided not to think about it. Before I stepped in the trench, I glanced down at my boots. Strange. I couldn't see them. They were covered in cotton? I looked around the earthworks. My goodness, I realized with a start... It was fog. A dense molasses thick fog was rising off the ground. Great and wonderful, billowy masses of fog. Fog, fog, fog. In minutes, the air was so white, I couldn't see five feet in front of me. The short soldier was cracking. Hey, boys, he hollered. Looks like we're going to get off this island after all. The redcoats can't attack through this. I curled up in the cold mud and basked in the luxuriant white cloud. It was thick, like a warm blanket. For the first time in three days, I fell sound asleep. I dreamt I was in a loft at the Bushnells, Ezra's familiar snore beside me. I pulled the blanket over my head and was drifting off to sleep when I heard the splat, splat of the horse hooves on mud outside the house. Then the most beautiful words I'd ever heard passed through the blanket into my ears. Regiment, prepare to move out. And this is the end of chapter nine.